Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Week 14 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. Play clock down to four. Carr takes the snap. Here comes an all-out blitz. Steps up in the pocket. Unloads one down the left sideline. Looking for runs. Drops it in. Touchdown. Are you kidding me? Great call by ESPN's Bob Wischusen on the play that will define the Jets' season from hell. Henry Ruggs, 46-yard touchdown with five seconds left. Raiders with a crazy, improbable 38, 31-28 win over the Jets. And we're going to be talking about that play for years and years because it typifies this season. Easily the worst in Jet history. But, you know, it also could re- be remembered as a, a turning point because it could be the play that leads the Jets to Trevor Lawrence. And we're going to get into more on the Clemson quarterback in the second quarter with our guest, Mel Kuyper Jr., ESPN's draft analyst. Mel is the GOAT been doing the draft thing for more than four decades, and I can't wait to talk to him about the Jets' draft plans, Lawrence, and the other top quarterbacks in the draft, so stay tuned for that in the second quarter. For now, the focus is Greg Williams, who was fired on Monday morning by Gase. Did he deserve to be fired? Yes. That zero blitz on the Ruggs touchdown was a horrible call, and you know, the truth is that this was building since October when Williams took a veil shot at the offense, meaning a veil shot at Gase. My sources tell me that didn't sit well with Gase. They had a long talk about it. And so that really started things. I think you started to see the cracks in their relationship. And plus, let's not forget the defense is ranked 29th right now and they're undisciplined. They lead the league with 11 roughing the passer penalties. I know that drove Gase crazy. And then came the all-out blitz against the Raiders, and that was just, you know, it was just a terrible call. It was a reckless call, uniquely reckless. ESPN's been tracking data on this sort of stuff since 2006, and this was the first time that a team sent more than six rushers in a situation like that. And by that, I mean under 15 seconds, leading by four to eight points and more than 40 yards from the end zone. A terrible call. Bad for three reasons. One, it wasn't necessary. All they had to do was protect the end zone and the sideline, a soft zone, a cover two, a cover three, maybe even a prevent. That would have done the trick. Uh, that's all they had to do. So, And number two, he did it with a bunch of rookies in the secondary. They had three rookies in the secondary on that play. They had, of course, Lamar Jackson, who got burned for the touchdown, Bryce Hall, and Javelin Guidry, who was blitzing on the play. So... The coach, Williams, did not put his players in the best position to succeed. You're asking Lamar Jackson, an undrafted free agent, to cover the receiver, the highest drafted receiver in this year's draft, probably one of the fastest guys in the league. That was not good coaching. Number three, it was an ego call. Greg Williams wanted to end the game with a sack. That's who Greg Williams is. He's arrogant. But don't get me wrong. Arrogant can be a good quality for a coach. The good ones have it. Greg flaunts it more than others. And I think Greg is a good coach. Last year, he did a terrific job with that defense. You know, but he has his flaws. You know, that edginess that he preaches. You know, some people recall the Bounty Gate scandal. You know, the personal fouls. And then there were calls like yesterday, which, by the way, surprised no one on the Raiders. I talked to a Raiders source. He said they expected that play. And Derek Carr checked to a max protect, and you saw what happened. I think some people are wondering, you know, where, where's Gase's responsibility in this? Where's the accountability? And yes, he had the ability 
to overrule Williams on that play. He heard the call in his headset, cover zero, but he didn't react. And on Monday, he said he should have called timeout to discuss it with him. I think that is just a symptom of a relationship that really, it was like a separation of powers between them. You know, Gase minded his own business on offense. Williams minded his business on defense. And they really never tried to cross over. And that's wrong. The head coach has to cross over. He has to coach the coaches as well as the players. That didn't happen in this case. And a terrible call got called and put those players in a terrible position. And I feel bad for those players. They were wrecked after the game. I mean, it was heartbreaking. And I know you're laughing and say, oh, they were 0-11 before this game. But they really, really wanted that game. And that was just that was just devastating for them. So a tough one. A man loses his job. And I, I think people are a little too caught up in the whole, you know, why didn't Gase get fired? You know, I uh, look. He's getting his in four weeks. That's coming. That's inevitable. This was only temporary, so I wouldn't spend too much time on that. He's the head coach. He can do what he wants. He has the power to fire people on his coaching staff. He did that. So I I wouldn't get too distracted by that. It's temporary. In four weeks, they'll all be gone. And so now we have the Jets in turmoil again. And, uh, you know, you're seeing this dysfunction Last week is the, was the offense with the play-calling fiasco. And let me tell you, that locker room is not in a good place right now. I bring up the Alex Lewis story. As I reported, you know, he has been dealing with a, uh, a non-football medical issue, and he sought help, and he'll be out at least three weeks on the NFI list. And the most important thing here is that he gets that help and that, you know, he gets back, you know, for his own well-being. But the fact is there was a football component to this, and my sources, eyewitnesses, tell me that Gase and Lewis got into a heated exchange at practice. You know, some Gase made, Lewis made a comment, something to the effect of questioning Gase's desire to win. Gase said something like, do you even want to be here? And Alex Lewis said, no, I don't. And he left practice. So, you know, that was a heated exchange. And the people who were watching it, these eyewitnesses tell me, you know, they were kind of taken aback by it, but they felt that Lewis articulated in public what a lot of players were thinking. So the Jets are in a mess right now, folks. You know, offense, defense, 0-12, staring at possibility of 0-16. This is not a good situation. This is the ugliest season ever. Back in a second. And we are now joined by draft analyst from ESPN, the great Mel Kuyper, who is, in my opinion, the best in the business. He's been doing this for many, many years, over 40 years, I believe. Mel, thank you so much for joining Flight Deck. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Rich. You've been a good friend for a lot of years. That's 42, 43 years, I think, now covering the draft. Be 39 at ESPN. So a lot of years, Rich. You've been there every step of the way with me, I think. Mel, I have I have your draft reports from like the late '80s. You know, I think <laughs> Troy Aikman was on the cover of one of them. That was the year Kim and I got shows. married. That was the '89 draft. Yes, yeah, so that was a memorable draft. Remember, Kim came down. We came down the elevator. Kim and I did with Troy Aikman that year in the Marriott Marquee uh, to the Grand Ballroom there, and that was a, a fun year all the way around with Troy going number one. Yeah, I have all your draft reports on my shelf. They were in an invaluable resource getting ready for the draft and. Uh, you know, Jet fans, like like they often do, are looking ahead to the draft, usually in October or November. And this is one of those years. I mean, they are in prime position to get Trevor Lawrence, assuming 
he decides to enter the draft. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you do expect him to be in the draft, don't you? Yes, uh, I think 100%. Uh, he's going to be the number one pick, but guaranteed. Um, I think you know, to go to the New York Jets with the draft capital that Joe Douglas has, uh, knowing that uh, everything's set up for, for them to have success moving forward. Eight picks in the first five rounds, as you know, Rich. They got a great opportunity this year moving forward. They had a productive draft last year. Uh, Quinn and Williams is really coming on from a few years ago. So they have some some foundation pieces on both sides of the ball. Uh, and obviously in that division, you think about now moving forward, you know, Josh Allen doing a good job up in Buffalo. And you think about what Tua can do in Miami. New England's going to figure it out, a quarterback moving forward. Uh, and then you have the Jets. So if you can get Trevor, uh, you're going to be able to have some great rivalry games moving forward with Buffalo, uh, with Miami. And you know, New England's never going to go away. So uh, it's unfortunately for Sam. Sam could trade it. There's several teams, New Orleans. Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Indianapolis, Tampa Bay. There's a lot of teams I think could be certainly uh, in the market for a quarterback like Sam Darnold. Now, you've been doing this so long, Mel, that you have the ability to uh, use perspective when comparing prospects. Now, how does Trevor compare to some of the best prospects you've seen at quarterback over the years? Well, he would be a guy that I, very rarely, Rich, do you talk about a guy years before he comes out as being the guaranteed number one guy. I did it in high school with Matthew Stafford because I just took a shot that his, his kids shows all the arm talent. Uh, to, you know, Maybe a senior in high school coming into college, you, you get lucky once in a while, and I did it with Stafford. But going back, John Elway, you know, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, uh, if you want to throw Matthew in there, Matthew Stafford into that group is who you knew he was eventually going to be the number one pick. Um, but I think he would certainly be a generational talent. Trevor would be. Um, and he was number one coming out of high school. Ironically, Justin Fields, Ohio State, was number two coming out of high school. And that's the way it could shape up come late April if both those quarterbacks go one, two. But he is in a special place in terms of a rating, Trevor is. And that's why even though Sam Darnold, I still think can be a good quarterback in this league. Uh, that's the reason why you're getting the great quarterback in Trevor, or potentially an elite, uh, one, one, one of the best of all time maybe in Trevor Lawrence. That's what you hope for, and that's why Sam Darnold is somebody that you would obviously deal. It would not be a tough decision to make. It's pretty obvious to me. Trade Sam Darnold and uh, move forward with Trevor Lawrence. So to you it's a no-brainer because, I mean, if the Jets were to decide to auction off that pick, the number one pick, I mean – I mean, I can't even imagine what they would get in return. I mean, future number ones and twos and who knows what else. But you think it's a no-brainer, though, that Joe Douglas has to take Trevor and ignore the temptation of a king's ransom for the pick? Well, think about this, Richie. Where are you going without a quarterback? And we don't know what those other picks are going to materialize into. Uh, you're confident with Joe Douglas and his staff. He's got some really good scouts there that, uh, that they'll be able to make those picks count. But you never know. And I think you also have to figure, okay – the division you're in, the ASC in general, Rich. I mean, you can look at the quarterbacks in the ASC with Mahomes and Deshaun Watson and Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Tua, Baker, Josh, uh, you know, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson. You know, Tannehill's not going away at Tennessee. He's still relatively young. Uh, Big Ben's still playing. The ASC just loaded with great young quarterbacks and a veteran quarterback in Big Ben as well, maybe another year or two out of him. But all these quarterbacks are going to be around for a long, long time. That's who you have to beat to get to a Super Bowl, and you have to outscore. And I, to know that you have Mahomes and Watson and Allen and Herbert and that crew and Lamar and Burrow to deal with, you got to take Trevor. You got It's like, do you want good to very good, or do you want – super elite, somebody that can carry a team on his shoulders. If you have injuries, he can still elevate. 
you know, good quarterbacks can't. Great quarterbacks can still keep you winning football games despite not having all those pieces around them. And, you know, in football every year there's injuries and there's issues, and you have to deal with that. Some quarterbacks, these super elites, the Aaron Rodgers, the Russell Wilsons, the Patrick Mahomes can keep you winning even when things aren't going great around you. So for me, it's, a, it's, it's obvious. If you're only going to get something, Rich, a second a, a, and a fifth, the Josh Rosen type trade, if that's all you're going to get for Sam Darnold, you're going to get tons of picks for Trevor Lawrence. Everybody's going to want them. Doesn't that tell you something right there? So if you're the Jets, yes, you could get a lot more for Trevor. We know that. But there's a reason why you can get a lot more for Trevor. So, you, 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 unfortunately, it's just uh, circumstances dictate. And I think they could win with Sam Darnold. I think somebody's going to win with Sam Darnold in the NFL. But in this particular case, uh, you have to take Trevor Lawrence. I totally agree with you. And now here's the interesting question. What happens if the Jets win a game here down the stretch and they end up with the number two pick? Kind of a different set of circumstances. You're not going to get Trevor Lawrence. He'd probably go to Jacksonville then. So what do you do if you're Joe Douglas, if you get the two pick, then you're looking at a Justin Fields or, or the Darnold equation. Is that a little more complicated to you or, or is it Justin Fields? That's much more dif- uh, difficult to, to decide and not easy. And by that, I mean, you know, Justin Fields had that game we all talk about against Indiana with three interceptions. He had a great year last year. Uh, the interception to end the a Clemson game wasn't his fault. Chris Olave broke the rat off and went the wrong way, and he thought it was inside, and he went outside. Bottom line is, Justin Fields going into the year, uh, you thought would be right there with Trevor Lawrence. It's not the case. Uh, or be close. It is really, there's a separation there, I believe. Um, Justin has enormous talent. He's, I think he's going to be a well of a quarterback in the NFL. But you know, to answer your question, I think Sam Darnold, to me, I would keep Darnold and I would trade that pick, that second pick, um, and allow somebody to go get Justin Fields. Uh, and, and somebody's going to give you some, a pretty good uh, number of draft picks. A decent uh, uh, group of draft picks could come your way for that second pick uh, because there's going to be a number of teams picking in that top group. It's certainly, you think about Denver, are they sold on Drew Locke? What are the, Reds, are the Washington football team going to do moving forward? And there's other teams as well could be jumping up in there to get Justin Fields. So uh, for me, uh, I think that would be something. Keep Sam then and trade that second pick if you get a really good offer. Yeah, and then you could move down a few spots and, and draft for need. You know, draft – I mean, the Jets have so many needs. You could pick up uh, – uh, the Penn State pass rusher is outstanding. Like, what other positional needs could they fill, say, if they drop down from two – to uh, somewhere in the, the three to seven range or somewhere, uh, what, what would be available there? Well, the players you're going to be looking at there would be uh, tight end like Kyle Pitts from Florida. Uh, what to both those really three wide receivers, Jamar Chase, LSU, Devontae Smith, Alabama, and Jalen Waddle coming off the injury, but he may be back for the end of the year for Alabama. Those three receivers plus the tight end uh, would be the elite guys. Micah Parsons, the linebacker from Penn State, Figures to go very high. He opted out. He had a spectacular year two seasons ago. Uh, Patrick Sertan, the second, the corner from Alabama. I'm not putting him up in that super elite group right now. So I would say you know, Penny Sewell, the left tackle from Oregon, will probably go three to Cincinnati. So I think the players you'd be looking at are, is that group I mentioned. And I think they'd be all be weapons. If you say you pick second, you trade that pick. Uh, Sam Darnold's your quarterback. Denzel Mim shows a lot of promise. Jamison Crowder is one of the most targeted receivers in the NFL. At Braxton Berrios, see if he has a future as a four or five. But I think when you look at, at a guy, adding a guy like Devontae Smith from Alabama, who I love, Rich, I think he's going to be spectacular. Yeah. A tight end like uh, who's more than a tight end. You can flex him out as a receiving entity. Kyle Pitts from Florida. 
or a Jamar Chase from LSU. Any one of those three would be great options for Sam Darnold in this offense if, in fact, Darnold's your quarterback moving forward. You trade the second pick, and you end up with one of those three guys. you got to feel pretty good about Denzel Mims with Devontae Smith or Denzel Mims with Kyle Pitts. That would be a, with knowing you didn't get anything from the tight end position this year so far, uh, that would be a, a, probably two positions, wide receiver, tight end, that you'd look at. Jet fans, when it comes to the draft, they're an interesting bunch, as you know, because they've seen – you know, they've been burned so many times in the past. The Jets have had some uh, some horrific draft picks. Maybe, could, what are your thoughts on just the recent years? Uh, you know, they they had a good one in Jamal, and they traded him. Uh, like you mentioned, Quinnen Williams looks like he's going to be a real good player. But before that, they just went through a, a real stretch under Mike McKagan where they had some drafting deficiencies uh, that seem to be hurting their roster right now. What are your just thoughts on the Jets' recent draft history? Yeah, I think that's the thing, Rich. I think you're looking at, the, as I mentioned, some foundation pieces, but who are those foundation pieces? And uh, you look at that football team right now on paper, and you have Quinnen Williams. It looks like he could be really good. He's getting the sacks. He's being disruptive along the interior. Great. No question about that. He'll be that piece moving forward. Uh, you think about in the secondary, Ashton Davis, kid out of Cal, a very athletic kid, tough kid. He looks like he has a future in terms of being a young guy, can really help that secondary down the road. Makai Becton, road grader at left tackle, great movement. Pass protection should continue to improve. He had a couple of struggles yesterday, but overall, he's shown great promise. Denzel Mims, the wide receiver, certainly uh, could be a guy, a foundation piece there as well. So we'll see about Michael P. Ryan, what he becomes as a running back you know, out of Florida and some of the other kids. But I think Joe Douglas has – added those pieces. In addition to, unfortunately, C.J. Mosley opted out. He had some injuries as well, as all teams do. But I think if you bring it all together next year after a draft with, like I say, eight picks in the first five rounds, that's two ones, a two, two threes, a four, and two fives, you should get rich. And you know this better than anybody. You Out of eight picks in the first five rounds for the Jets, that could be six starters. Minimum. Yeah. I mean, a couple key backups. You know, guys, rotational guys. That's eight players should help your football team this year coming up and moving forward. And as, as I said, add to those foundation pieces. Give you three or four more in addition to what you have. And the guys coming off the opt-out, guys coming off the injured list, add some free agents. All of a sudden, next year, if you get some luck on the injury front and the right coach and the right situation, all of a sudden, then uh, you're making a nice jump up. And whether it's Sam or whether it's Trevor, we'll have to see about that. That is dependent upon are you picking one or are you picking two? Picking one, you take Trevor. You trade Sam. Picking two, trade the pick and keep Sam. So this is going to be dependent upon what happens over the next four weeks. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, these games are so, even though the Jets are, are been out of it for a while, these games are so significant. That's why Sunday's game against uh, the Raiders with that crazy ending with Ruggs with the long touchdown, I mean, that could be a play that we might look back 10 years from now as saying that that could be the play that ended up getting them Trevor Lawrence. You know? Yeah, it's like Green Bay ended up winning and ended up with Tony Mandarich and the, the Dallas Cowboys got Troy Aikman. So, again, yeah. that was an 89 because of some, a win late in the year. So, now they ended up with Brett Favre. You know, Ron Wolf made that move to get Brett Favre. So, it worked out okay down the road for the Green Bay Packers. But, you know, and Tony Mandarich ended up being a decent offensive lineman in the league, but not a great player like you thought he would be. And there's Dallas with Troy Aikman and all those Super Bowls ring so and and uh and super bowl title so i think you look at it yes in 10 to 12 15 years from now you look back you can say boy that one play uh yeah they might be uh sending greg williams a christmas present every year saying thank you for that uh for that uh call you made to allow the raiders to kind of steal that game that nobody thought they had a chance to win late Derek Carr included i think in that group and i'm sure john gruden at the sm thought it was over uh you know but yeah they they were given a chance and they took advantage of it and the jets end up with Trevor Lawrence. And if that's the case, 
I think Jet fans were probably celebrating after that game yesterday saying, thank you. Let's just not win any. Let's get Trevor Lawrence and hope he's as good as everybody says he should be. Yeah, uh, no doubt. I think there was a lot of celebrating going on. Um, you know, just uh, just on a personal note, Mel, I mean, you've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a long time. I remember in 89 when the Jets drafted Jeff Lagerman, you were very critical of them on TV, and that became kind of a thing. Uh, I, I look back at it and, and kind of laugh about, <laughs> you know, some of the moments you've gotten into, of course, with the Colts that year, that one pick in uh, yep. with the, the Trent Dilfer pick. Yep. Remember the 89, the Lagerman? I think you were Yeah, you were pretty yeah, critical of that wasn't pick. Jeff. I had, actually, you got the blue book. You could go back and look at the blue book. The write-ups, it's all on paper. I, he was great as a linebacker. They made moved him to the defensive end, and Jeff became a pretty good player in the NFL. Yeah. Well, after he made now, he was a disappointment as a linebacker, but then once they made that move to him as a defensive end, he really came on and gave him some good years there. So, uh, yeah, it was just a case where they picked him, could they have traded down, and the position he was drafted at he didn't make it at it was a positional change that allowed him to flourish and prosper and great for him but uh, the Colts thing was just the difference of opinion on do you take you know Trent Dilfer do you take Trev Alberts who ended up I ended up working with at ESPN great guy but uh, that was just an opinion that I expressed and uh, the GM at the time Bill Tobin took exception to it Rich which made that one to remember I had had I remember a year I was critical of, a, of the Rams when they took uh, you know, they made two picks, Lawrence Phillips and then Eddie Kennison. I thought they should have taken, uh, you know, Eddie George and Marvin Harrison. I was very critical of that. But the, when they went to the head coach, he said, hey, no, let's write to his opinion. We think we've got two, two good players. Nobody ever remembers that call, uh, Rich, because nobody in the league took exception to it. So it's basically controversies are usually crea- created by the reaction you get from people. And uh, that's why those two years that you mentioned, Rich, are more memorable for that reason. Yeah. You're, you're more often than not, you're right about these evaluations, but is there one or two maybe over your career where you, you thought this guy was a can't miss and he just turned and it just didn't work out for some reason? Any one or two that you, you kind of missed on? Yeah, I think the quarterbacks that go back, Andre Ware, I thought was set up perfectly to go to the Detroit Lions, you know, coming out of that, that run and shoot offense and going to the Detroit Lions. Now, I think what hurt him, remember the holdout, allowed Rodney Pete to mm-hmm. secure that, uh, that team and be the quarterback. I, I asked Herman Moore about that. We worked together uh, in the movie Jerry Maguire back in the day, and I asked Herman about that, and he said, yeah, he came in late. We, you know, Rodney got the team. He was the leader of the team, and you know, you know coming in late hurt uh, Andre. And then, of course, the one everybody talks about is Jimmy Clausen. And Jimmy Clausen, I thought coming out of Notre Dame would be a good quarterback in the NFL. He ended up going in the second round, and he never panned out. And uh, you know, that was something that I thought would, would allow him to be a, a better quarterback than he was. I thought going to Carolina provided he had an opportunity. He just wasn't as good as I thought he would be. So that was a, a mistake in terms of an evaluation on my part. And you go back and you try to figure out what happened. I think every player, Rich, that you miss on, you try to figure out why were you higher than you should have been the only thing i say that saved me on that he was a second round pick not a first round pick right. so it didn't hurt carolina that that bad they moved on to cam newton a year later but still a quarterback i thought would be good wasn't why did that happen so you try to go back and look at your report look at the games you maybe put more emphasis on and see if you overreacted to something here or there or what created a mistake but hey at the end of the day when you evaluate thousands and thousands of players your you, your track record it's going to be you know good if it's if it's a certain percentage you're never going to be close to 100 percent not gonna be close to 80 percent so you have to realize that they're gonna be guys for whatever reason either exceed expectations or for whatever reason fail to perform up to the level you expected just on behalf of jet fans i just have to ask you about one uh, and i don't know where you had him rated uh christian hackenberg obviously did not work out he never played it down in the nfl which is stunning for a, a second round pick at a penn state uh how did you evaluate him coming out 
Yeah, he was one. Yeah, early on, he looked like a guy. I remember looking at him thinking, boy, he's throwing the ball well. He's got the size. And what you don't do, Rich, which we don't do, and I I've, I always try to do a little bit more, is, is evaluate kids early in their careers. And then so you get a little barometer on where they were to where they are. So it's not just about that one season. So I, you just had to kind of always you know, change your thought. You can't lock in and say, well, he looked good. You know, now he's struggling. So you got to try to react with how he performs. And I remember the report on him kept the rating kept dropping. And as he kept playing, you kept saying, boy, he goes from like a, I was ranking him as a, say a nine, three to an eight, six to an eight, one to a seven, five. It was his rating kept dropping. And you'd say, well, is it circumstances? What's creating this? What's the reason? And uh, it was just really, he just regressed and he never was able to, after showing promise early on, he never was able to get back to, to, to anywhere close to being a quarterback you could maybe move forward with and feel good that he could maybe be a successful quarterback in this league. So that's just one of the, I think it's a rare situation where you see kids show so much promise early on and then kind of fade way out of the picture and they took him in the second round as a guy they probably felt like hey early on looks like a top guy and we'll take him in the second see if we can recreate what Christian Hackett what we thought he could be or or build him back up or coach him back up and get him to the, be the quarterback everybody thought he could be at one point in time unfortunately that never happened I've always wanted to ask you, Mel, like during the season, during a college football season, like how much video do you watch? You, I'm just guessing you, you much watch like just an endless amount of video and how much of that do you use for your evaluations and how much do you use just from talking to people around the league to like, how much do you weigh each one? Yeah, it's always, uh, you know, looking at that's all you do, Rich, all day. I mean, all, even in May, June, July, that's, that's everything I do to get that big board ready for August is, you know, evaluating players from that previous year, going back, like we said, some of their freshman year, their sophomore year. Because some of these kids only have X amount of starts. So you got to go back and look at when they were a little younger, if that they're only a one-year starter, what did they do the year prior to that and put it all together? And it's it's very because the systems they come out of, the coaching that they have, the system, they can say the players around them, in Injuries. There's a lot of factors that go into whether a player shines or he doesn't. Uh, so you, I basically look at as many many games as I possibly can, and then you talk to your your friends in the league, and everybody gets back and forth the conversations, and you weigh everything. They're seeing things that maybe you didn't see on a player. They found out something you didn't know. Uh, you weren't. They have resources that I don't have to get even a little bit more an injury or on something else that they may have heard or seen. And and the guys that I been friends with for some yeah, 40 years, Rich. I've known some of these guys for a long, long time. I trust them. They know that anything they tell me is not going any further. And uh, some you go with, some you don't. Some I look back on and say, boy, I should have stuck to my guns on that. I should have stuck to my own opinion. Or uh, you know, I was swayed a little bit. Uh, or I wasn't. I should have been swayed. Right? So right. It's, when you talk to people that you respect, obviously it's an impactful conversation or you don't have them. And hopefully over the years you provide a little bit of insight on your end that maybe they didn't weren't aware of because when I was doing the blue book, everybody was getting that book for and just looking through it, seeing if there was some little tidbit maybe they could get out of that book that maybe they, they, the scouts didn't provide. So it's a back and forth. And at the end of the day, you have to weigh everything you hear and you see, Rich, and then make a final call. Okay, at the end of the day, you have to put a grade on that player. You have to mock him wherever you think he should go. And you have to rank him in that positional analysis wherever you think he should be. And that's that, that's on you. That, that, there's nobody else who's going to look back and say, I can't, I can't blame it on anybody. I put my name on that book, that blue book that you got, Rich, and it was my opinions and, and everything that produced it and came, that came together to make that player get the grade he did was on me. So uh, that's why you can listen and then you can talk to people. But at the end of the day, I had to make that final call. 
I'm wondering, at any point in your career, did you ever think of or have an opportunity to go work for an NFL team as a scout or a front office person? Yeah, it's actually, I was just having a conversation uh, last week with Ernie Acorsi, who's been a good friend of mine. Oh, that's uh, right. You know, you know, Ernie is a great guy. He's been a, you know, Ernie, I got to know him when I was 16 years old, Rich, right. at Colt camp. And uh, Ernie offered me a position with the Colts. Ironically, I don't know if people have heard the story. Some have. It was in uh, the early years, in 1983. I was in, in February of 83. I was doing the books, as you know, and I was 22 at the time. And Ernie called and wanted me to come to work for the Baltimore Colts for the 83 season. Uh, I was, yeah, I said, okay. He said, well, announce it in August. Uh, Just go do your draft report. Go through the draft. Do what you're doing. I wasn't at ESPN yet. And did all that. And then that's when the Elway trade happened. There was talk of the Colts moving. Ernie wasn't going to be hanging around. And he called me up and said, I can't bring you in. Is my guy working for me, knowing that the team may be moving. You're a Baltimore guy. You're young. You got the business going. You have to give up the business, obviously. And he knew he wasn't going to be around much longer. So he said, it wouldn't be fair to you to do that. So I said, what do you, he said, hey, no harm, no foul. He said, you know, nobody knew it. We didn't announce it yet. It wasn't going to happen until August. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I did. And from that point on, yeah, different people come to you for this or that. But nothing at that point, Rich, you know, you know it was not anything I would ever even consider because the, the business was doing great. I, I, ironically, after Ernie made that decision to move on and they just thought the Colts ended up moving to Indianapolis and all that, and L.A. was traded without his knowledge, as you know, that whole story, uh, was that uh, about five months later, I got a call from ESPN to come up and interview for the, uh, the draft job, the, the analyst job from the draft. So uh, if Ernie wouldn't have thought about a young 22-year-old kid and he would have continued to bring me in and gone through with that, I would have never been at ESPN. I probably wouldn't have been with the Colts much longer after that because they would have wanted their own people. So without Ernie making that call and, and having a, the, the, uh, the future of a 22-year-old kind of in his hands without him being considerate of that, I probably wouldn't be where I am right now. Ernie and I actually were talking about that last week about how things could have changed uh, had that gone a little bit differently back in 1983. Yeah, Ernie's a good man. He's a very good man. and uh, Oh, he's the best, Rich. Yep. Cer- certainly well-respected in New York uh, for his uh, impact that he had on the Giants Super Bowl teams. And um, just one last thing I wanted to ask you, Mel. How do you think – I'm looking ahead to the scouting season, you know, the postseason. How do you think it will be affected, uh, senior bowl, combine, et cetera, by COVID? I mean, is it going to impair the ability, you know, scouting or, you know, draft prep? How do you think it's going to impact the whole process of draft prep? It's a great question, Rich. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 I call it a mysterious draft. Somebody said, give me one word on it. It's mysterious because a lot of guys opted out. Uh, and these were guys that were going to go very high in the draft. You know, players like, you know, Michael Parsons, a linebacker at Penn State, Penn A. Sewell, the offensive tackle, left tackle at Oregon, all were opt-out. Caleb Farley, outstanding cornerback at Virginia Tech, uh, Gregory Rousseau, the pass rushing defensive end from Miami of Florida, Rashawn Slater, versatile offensive lineman from Northwestern, uh, all those guys. And then how about the opt-outs in season that we've had as well? So, the, and then you have the injured players, Jalen Waddle coming off the ankle injury at Alabama and some others there. Uh, the senior bowl will be taking, I talked to Jim Nagy, uh, Jim's going to bring some opt-out guys that didn't play to Mobile for the Senior Bowl. That's going to be critical for them. Obviously, combine, always important, pro days. We'll see how it goes with COVID this year. Obviously, missed on a lot of pro days last year. Went through the combine last year, no problem. Then few pro days, and then COVID hit. So we'll see how this all works out. Uh, right now, 11 regular bowl games have already been canceled as of today, Rich. And we'll see moving forward how many actual bowl games we have. Senior Bowl plans to go ahead. Jim's all excited about it. He's really excited about what he has coming to Mobile. Uh, but some of the opt-out kids 
will be there. So I think for them, that will be an important week down there because uh, they didn't play this year, and uh, they'll have an opportunity in Mobile to showcase their skills for some of the kids that were, like I say, opt-outs. Well, it's going to be a fascinating draft season, and especially for the Jets because of uh, where they might be picking and who's available. So, uh, Mel, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you are, I mean, you are an NFL institution, and I, I hope the fans appreciate that. No one, no one does it better than you do, and, you know, I've always appreciated your time over the years. Well, I'll tell you, Richard, I miss seeing all the Jets and Giants fans up in New York for the draft. And I had a lot of all the customers from New York. It was a, a lot of people bought that blue book and supported us over the years. I want to thank all of them. Have a great uh, Christmas, great New Year, and stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, Rich, you've always been a great friend, and uh, you do a phenomenal job. So it's a, you know, it's a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today. Great. Thanks so much, Mel. Thanks, Rich. See you, pal. Welcome to the third quarter of Flight Deck. And you know what that means? That means I'm going into the Twitter timeline to pluck out some questions. Thanks for all the great questions. As I've been doing the last couple of weeks, the ones I can't answer here, I will get to, say, like a little impromptu Saturday Twitter Twitter Q&A. So uh, we're starting it off in the leadoff spot with one of my favorite guys, at sports underscore FI3ND. What do you believe could be Darnold's main flaw that's keeping him from becoming a good starter in the NFL? And also, what would be fair compensation in a trade? Well, sports, it's decision-making. That is the number one flaw, and that is uh, something a quarterback must have before he can achieve the level you mentioned. In 34 career starts, he has 37 interceptions. That is not good. You can trace this back to college at USC. He started only 24 games, but he had 29 interceptions. So you total it up, college and pro, 58 career starts, 66 interceptions, one per game is not good. He has to improve his decision-making. Fair compensation? I, I know the Jets are thinking they could get a low one for him. He'd have to play really well down the stretch for that to happen. I'm thinking more along the lines of a two and something else. Uh, next one. Well, actually, the next two questions are going to be focusing on Bill Cower, whose name got floated this week on WFAN Radio by former Jet quarterback and my good friend Boomer Esiason, who clearly has a very close relationship with Bill Cower from they're uh, working together on the CBS NFL today, and he mentioned some comments about Cower possibly being interested in the Jets' position. And so at Labrizzi underscore Brian asks the question, hearing rumors about Cower coming out of retirement, what are your thoughts? And also at Lohmeyer underscore Nick says, could uh, Cower be a 2020 version of what Bill Parcells was in 1997? I'll take Nick's question first. No, I don't think so, because in 97, when the Jets hired Parcells, he was coming off a Super Bowl appearance with the Patriots. So he was in the game. He was fresh. Everybody knew him. The players knew him everywhere in the league. Cowher's been out for more than a decade. And so I don't think it would have that instant savior type of impact that Parcells did in 97. What are my thoughts on him coming out of retirement? I covered a lot of Cowher's games when the Steelers were in the playoffs every year. I think he's a very good coach. I loved his passion and the intensity he brought, but he's been gone for so long that I wonder, can you can you recapture that passion by just flicking on a switch? I know he loves his life now. He lives in New York a lot of the year, does the CBS thing. And I, I wonder about that, about how he'd be able to make that transition. On the other hand, John Gruden was out for a long time, Dick Vermeil, and they had success coming back. 
So you never say never. At Tony Mott, 72, was the firing of Greg Williams a sign that they're keeping Adam Gase? Tony, as I referred to in the first quarter, no. This is just a temporary move of a lame duck coach uh, exercising his power to shake things up, firing an assistant coach, which, as I mentioned, is his right. But no, this is not a sign they're keeping Gase. He will be in Greg Williams' position in four weeks. At Israel DMS 7, Rex Ryan was saying on TV that this was the dumbest call he's ever seen. What about the Broncos game in 2011, you ask? You're absolutely right. You know, for those who didn't catch it, Greg went on, I mean, Rex went on, uh, get up on Monday morning and called it the dumbest call ever on Greg's uh, zero blitz. Uh, And Greg, and the thing is, you're right. Rex called the same thing 2011 at Denver, all-out blitz on Tebow. Tebow escapes the pocket, rushes for a 20-yard touchdown to put the Broncos ahead with about a minute to go. Very similar situation. You have a good memory. And at the time, Rex took a lot of criticism for that call because that, too, was a dumb call. Rex evidently a little bit of selective amnesia on that situation. At Daddy CWG, do you see a possible Rex Ryan Jets reunion? It seems like he still thinks of the Jets as his dream job. And yes, he does. I always believe and still believe that he considered the Jets his dream job. I think he would drop his TV stuff in a heartbeat to go back to the Jets. I think he wants in. I don't think ownership feels the same way, so I don't see that happening. In our last question from Matt Rami underscore Lavi. Does this ultimately, this, I mean, referring to Marcus May's comments after the game, does it ultimately cause a wedge between May and the Jets that can't be repaired? Especially this Sunday, he'll have Jamal Adams whispering in his ear. Of course, the Jets are having their little reunion with Adams this weekend in Seattle. Uh, no, I don't think it comments drives a wedge between May and the Jets. He's heading to free agency. They will make a business decision. I think they like him as a free safety. I don't think they're going to overpay. This is a situation where I think he's a solid player, not an exceptional player. And I know they think highly of Aston Davis as possibly being their free safety of the future. So I think it'll be a business decision. It'll have nothing to do with his comments from Sunday. And welcome to quarter number four. The Jets are going to Seattle this week, and we know what that means. This game uh, was circled on Jamal Adams' calendar. I'm sure the day he was traded in late July, the Jets meeting up with their former All-Pro safety. That'll be a huge story going in. And interestingly, Jamal has seven and a half sacks this year, which he's accomplished in eight games, by the way, which is, is pretty incredible. And he is on the verge of breaking the NFL sack record for defensive backs. The record is held by Adrian Wilson in 2005. He had eight sacks as a DB. So Jamal needs only a half a sack to tie a full sack to break the record. And I'm going to go on record right now as saying he will absolutely get that record against the Jets. And you know how much that will mean to him. I'm sure he has revenge on his mind. But, you know, I look at this game a different way. When I think of the Seahawks, I think of Pete Carroll. And maybe this is old school Jets, Rich Samini beat writer talking here. But 
I really enjoyed covering Pete Carroll when he was with the Jets. He was a defensive coordinator for 90 to 93, head coach in 94, got a raw deal, fired after only one year. And the thing I admire about Pete is he's coaching now the same way he did back then. He hasn't changed his philosophy. He's very laid back kind of a rah-rah guy. He was criticized for it in the mid-90s. People said, oh, that'll never work. And he didn't change. He stuck to who he is. And I remember so many times, Pete put a basketball court in at the Jets' old facility on Long Island. He literally had a basketball court with a really nice fiberglass backboard. And after practice, he and some of the coaches would play three-on-three games. And as beat reporters, we sometimes waited for their games to end to interview them. And I can't tell you how many times Pete would come over, kind of huffing and puffing, sweat pouring down his face, and we were talking to him, you know, for an interview about the Jets. And he just came off the basketball court. So it was a loose atmosphere, really laid back. I thought he was a good coach. Not everyone would agree with that style, but it was cool. I mean, and I remember... Even during practice, the coaches and players would be on the field and we, meaning the beat writers, we would play games of horse and shoot around during practice, right? The basketball court was adjacent to the practice field. And I remember a couple of times, I think the ball got away and rolled down a hill right into the middle of the practice field. So there I am asking Ronnie Lott, future Hall of Fame safety, say, hey, Ronnie, can you throw the ball back? Little help, please. And Ronnie would throw the ball back right in the middle of practice, and we'd go on and finish our horse game. I mean, that would never, ever happen in today's NFL, but it was a different time, a different era, and it was really, really fun covering Pete Carroll, and I'm, I'm glad to see that he's had so much success with Seattle, of course, the Super Bowl championship. Should have had two, but... We know how, know how that Marshawn Lynch play went down. But Pete is a good dude, and uh, I will look forward to seeing him from afar on TV this weekend. I want to thank my special guest this week, Mel Kuyper Jr., for joining us and talking draft. That was really cool. I want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting this all together. Please rate and subscribe us. Let us let us know what you think. And uh, you can get us on any of the Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, any of the ESPN platforms. Enjoy the game this weekend. We'll see if the Jets can keep it going and make it 0-13. We'll talk to you next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.